0: Welcome to Tribcast, the flagship podcast for the La Crosse Tribune. I'm digital news editor Scott Rada, and we are joined today by Anthony Churgowski, who is an assistant professor of political science and public administration at the University of Wisconsin La Crosse. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. And we are taping this Monday morning, and we are a week and a day away from the spring election cycle which I think there's one prediction we can safely make uh, sitting here this morning, is that we're not going to have a huge turnout next Tuesday. Uh, That's right, Scott.
1: Uh, Wisconsin had high voter turnout in the November election, about 61% turnout. Do not expect 61% turnout in this upcoming election. Uh, Just to give you an example of what to expect, in the 2018 election for the Wisconsin State Supreme Court, uh, you had voter turnout of about 22%. And that blew people's minds how massive that turnout
0: was. So that's more in line with what to expect as opposed to the November numbers. And and you mentioned the Supreme Court race between Brian Hagedorn and Lisa Neubauer, that's the only statewide race that folks will see on Tuesday's ballot, correct? That's right. It's a
1: it's what I call a nonpartisan partisan election. Because when voters go to the polls, they're not going to see a D or an R next to Hagedorn and Neubauer's name. So they're not going to have that little Q, uh, that little party label. But Do the parties have a clear preference in this election? Absolutely. Is there an ideological distinction between these two candidates? Absolutely.
0: So that's why I call it sort of a nonpartisan, partisan partisan election. And this is not, you know, the last few cycles of these uh, Supreme Court races here in Wisconsin have been real similar. Again, no R's, no D's, but a clear distinction between the candidates. And and this one really sets up a clear choice uh, in 2020. It does, Scott, because right now you have a four to three conservative majority on the Wisconsin State Supreme Court, and and just to be clear, this uh, is an open seat of being vacated by. Very long-time Justice Shirley Abrahamson. On the Supreme Court since 1976, and the
1: first female justice on the Wisconsin State Supreme Court. So she is a legendary figure on the Wisconsin State Supreme Court. And she has announced her retirement, so this is filling her seat. Abrahamson is part of the liberal wing of the Supreme Court and so what you know liberals and Democrats are hoping is that Lisa Neubauer can win this election and basically maintain the status quo at a four to three uh,
0: conservative majority setting the stage for a pivotal election in 2020. We don't know exactly uh, who the candidates will be although it's likely Justice Kelly has all but said he's running. That's right. So Justice Kelly, Justice Dan Kelly,
1: is an appointee of former Governor Scott Walker, and he's up for his first election in 2020. Now that election coincides with the presidential primary, which is expected to have a much higher Democratic turnout than Republican turnout. Uh, We're expected to be in the middle of an exciting and competitive season for the Democratic candidates for president competing for the nomination, where as of now, it doesn't seem like President Trump has serious competition within the Republican Party for the nomination. And so it's expected that Democrats are going to be fired up there's going to be high democratic turnout in 2020 and so that's got conservatives nervous uh, because if Newbauer wins this election you maintain a 4 to 3 conservative majority going into 2020 but then you get Justice Kelly up in 2020 a conservative justice and if Kelly loses to a more liberal opponent then you've got all of a sudden a 4 to 3 liberal majority on the state supreme court and Going from a conservative to a liberal majority uh, that, you know, is expected, if that was the case, would be in place for the next several years, that could have significant consequences for Wisconsin politics. So what voters should think of the 2019 races as kind of the table setter for 2020. Uh, will the status
0: quo be maintained or will conservatives expand their majority? And of course, that is the only statewide race on the April 11th ballot. Here in La Crosse, we have a number of county and school referendum issues. Um, and again, that's sort of what how Wisconsin has set this up for a long time now is that the spring is reserved for these nonpartisan uh, races. And you mentioned at the at the at the top level, at the at the Supreme Court level, there's sort of a a quiet D and a quiet R after after a lot of those candidates. But when you get down to things like county board and city council, those those differentiations aren't quite as clear to voters. Is that true? That's true, Scott. Uh,
1: When you get down to the local level of politics, it does become typically difficult to tell which candidate is from which party and that goes back to the old saying there's no such thing as a democratic or republican pothole and so oftentimes at the local level of politics uh, things are a bit less partisan but when you zoom back as we've talked about and go to state level politics like the state supreme court Uh, you you get more of a partisan bent. And I think that's some kind of a... It might be a little unusual for voters to think about the courts in that way, to think about justices in... In pretty harshly ideological terms, but political science research has found that judges have clear ideologies. That's why there's a clear preference for Brian Hagedorn on the conservative side and the Republican side. That's why there's a clear preference for Lisa Neubauer on the Democratic side and the more liberal side. Uh, and, and so voters are going to see different types of races on the ballot. They're going to see the Wisconsin State Supreme Court election, where there is a clear ideological distinction, and as you noted, there's sort of that secret party affiliation among the candidates. But then at the other races they're looking at, honestly very difficult to
0: tell and may not even matter which party (laughs) the candidates align with. I've had a chance to meet uh, over the years a number of people running for state Supreme Court, and one sort of bipartisan agreement they have, it seems, is I often ask, you know, whether they think electing judges is the right path. Now, I suppose uh, those candidates realize that because they're in this election process, it's hard to say, for them to say that you know, an appointment process is somehow better, but I I spoke to one of the candidates recently who I thought made a compelling argument to me saying that, you know, if you're appointed, you can sit in your office, make connections with the important people in state government, and hope the phone rings and you get the nod, whereas this process really forces these candidates to see every corner of the state, meet people they probably would never otherwise meet, and really learn more about the state than than they would if they were just sitting waiting for that phone call. But there are certain states across our country who handle state Supreme Court races or appointments very differently. What are your thoughts on, on how Wisconsin chooses uh, Supreme Court justices? Well, Scott,
1: when people ask me, you know, how does this state... Uh, how do the states handle judicial selection? It's often a frustrating answer because the answer is it depends, and that's usually the answer when we talk about different state-level political issues. Uh, Each state has a slightly different system for selecting judges. Now, the first distinction I want to make, Scott, is between the federal level and the state level, where at the federal level, no judges are elected, but at the state level, the vast majority of judges are elected. Now, there are different systems for electing judges. There are there are partisan elections, where we're just honest about which party the candidates affiliate with. There are nonpartisan elections, like we have in Wisconsin, where you don't get the party label on the ballot. And there are what we call retention elections, where they, where a judge is appointed, they serve for a time. And the question posed to voters isn't which candidate you want, it's should this person continue to serve as a judge, yes or no. Um, Now, as a political scientist, I think that the Wisconsin system is a bit problematic. I think it's a bit problematic because as a political scientist, I view the party label on the ballot as being quite valuable to voters. Voters typically don't take the time to do significant research on the different candidates. And now the question then becomes, well, how do voters make an informed choice if they're not doing a lot of research? Well, they can make a pretty good choice by just looking at the party label next to the candidates Uh, in an era of polarization, in an era of clear distinctions between the Democratic and Republican parties. Voters can tell a lot about what a candidate stands for just by looking at that D or that R next to voters. Now, when you take that party label away, you're taking away a lot of information from the voters, and you're taking away a lot of information about what the candidates stand for. Now, if this was truly a contest between judges who are straight down the middle, truly no ideological distinction between them, truly no daylight between them in terms of which party they prefer. My view would be different about this system. But when you have candidates like Neubauer and her, you know, the preference for her among Democrats, like Hagedorn and the preference for him among Republicans, when you have that distinction between the candidates, but you're almost kind of hiding that from the voters, to me that is concerning as a political scientist. It raises a question, do voters know what they're getting when they vote for these candidates? And can they make an informed choice without the party label, without any type of cue on the ballot as to what the candidates stand for?
0: Another thing Lacrosse County voters will see on the ballot is an advisory referendum on uh, gerrymandering or how we draw uh, political boundaries. And I think it's important to stress that this is just an advisory referendum. This is happening in both La Crosse and Vernon County here in our area. It has happened in other cities and counties across the state. But this has become something that probably five, ten years ago, people didn't think a whole lot about. And people are thinking more and more about. And Wisconsin is really sort of in the, the center of a lot of these debates. Uh, maybe you can tell listeners a little bit about why uh, this became such a high-profile issue in Wisconsin specifically, and what the ballot uh, question is asking. Scott, I'll give you two numbers: uh, thirty-six and fifty-four. The Democratic
1: candidates for state assembly in Wisconsin got fifty-four percent of the overall popular vote
0: statewide.
1: They so that must mean
0: that they have the
1: the assembly and the senate, right? Well, well, you would think you would think, Scott, but they only have thirty-six percent of the seats now. If you look at the gerrymanders that have taken place across the country, Wisconsin's is viewed as particularly egregious. By that, I mean that the Republicans in Wisconsin did an excellent job of gerrymandering the state to maximize the number of Republicans who would get elected. Now, how did they do that? They did that by cramming as many Democratic supporters as possible into as few districts as possible. So that's how you get that discrepancy between the 54% of the vote that the Democratic candidates got and the 36% of the seats that they got. Now, what we're looking at, Scott, as you mentioned, is purely an advisory referendum. So this is just to gauge public opinion and put pressure on public officials. Governor Evers has proposed moving to a non-partisan redistricting commission and public opinion is really on his side in doing that. If you ask the public, should legislators handle redistricting or should an independent commission handle redistricting? There's a clear preference among both parties for an independent co- commission. Now, the legislators might not have that same preference because you're talking about taking away a really critical power from the legislators if you take away their power to redraw the districts. That's an enormous advantage for the majority party. If you have basically free reign to redraw the district lines, and as was the case in 2010, if you had a governor who was willing to sign off on the Republican gerrymander what an advantage for the state legislature to have. And you can understand why there's going to be significant pushback in the state legislature for taking away this power from them. And and by the way, this highlights the importance of the state Supreme Court election because the U.S. Supreme Court got the Wisconsin gerrymandering case, had the opportunity to make a ruling on partisan gerrymandering, and punted on the issue they sent it back to the lower courts. And so are we going to get a resolution on partisan gerrymandering from the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, right now, that seems really up in the air. What that means is that this could get kicked down to the Wisconsin State Supreme Court, and that's where
0: the ideological balance of the Wisconsin State Supreme Court becomes hugely consequential. I guess a couple of things. One, you know, people who may like the status quo with this would would ask you, how can possibly you have nonpartisan drawing of districts? How can, how can you be assured that, that the, pe- the person or the people who are doing this are setting aside all, all their possible leanings and, and truly drawing what's fair? And Scott, this is why I tell people that the
1: devil is always in the details about these nonpartisan redistricting commissions, these supposedly independent redistricting commissions. Now, we can make the argument, we can have a valid argument about whether or not an independent commission would be superior to the status quo. But what you're talking about is absolutely a valid concern. How do we expect these experts, how do we expect these people selected for the commission to put aside all of their partisan views? How do we select people who we can trust to put aside their partisan views? And so people shouldn't have sort of a uh, a, – shouldn't have an overly optimistic view of these independent commissions because one criticism of these independent commissions is that they're not truly independent. They're not truly – Uh, absent of any partisan considerations. Again, there's a debate to be had about the merits of independent commissions versus the merits of the legislature redrawing the districts. But people should not be under the impression that the independent redistricting commissions are somehow a perfect solution to the problems associated
0: with redistricting and gerrymandering. And I think it's also important to remind people that whereas in Wisconsin, we you know the perception and often the reality is that you know republicans have have rigged the system in a certain way and, and democrats are trying to pull back on that there are other states in this nation where the opposite is true that's right, Scott. So Maryland is a great example, where the Republican Party is suing
1: the, uh, the Maryland Democrats for a partisan gerrymander. And you know what I, what I tell my students when we talk about gerrymandering, this tends to be a topic that is of significant interest to students, what I tell students is that the rules really matter in politics. And this is a great example of how the rules matter. If the rules allow a political party to redraw the districts, frankly, from just a kind of a a rational perspective, you would expect them to try to maximize their share of seats in the legislature. I mean, if the rules of the game are giving that important of a power to a political party, from one perspective, the party would almost be crazy not to take advantage of that power. And so you're right, Scott, to point out that this isn't about the, this isn't about shaming Republicans. What I view this as is a matter of the rules in Wisconsin. The rules in Wisconsin enabled the Republicans to win the majority of seats in the state assembly, for example, in spite of losing the popular vote, because they simply took advantage of the rules, like we would expect election, re-election-minded politicians to do. And so what I would suggest to people is that they shouldn't, so much be angry at the Republican Party if they don't like the partisan gerrymandering in Wisconsin. They should be dissatisfied with the rules that have been set up, and they should be seeking to find a better set of rules, a different set of laws that can better constrain the activities of political parties and
0: re-election-minded legislators. Just to kind of finish up on a little different point here, how frustrating as someone who follows public policy and politics closely do you find it that you know you could ask almost anybody in this country who the president of the united states is and they know and that's not because we have president trump clearly we had president obama and everybody know, knew who he was too if you went out and asked who the governor is most people probably know maybe not everyone if you ask start asking people who represents them in congress Again, fewer people. Then you start asking questions like county board and who represents them on city council. You'll get a lot, a lot of blank stares. So how, and as an institution here at the La Crosse Tribune, where we cover a lot of local politics and what happens at the city council and the school board and the county board, how do we make sure that people are paying close attention because it's tough no matter who is sitting in the White House? to get a call returned or to get your voice heard, but you you know very well that if there's an issue that's important to you, you can call up a city council member, call up a member of your county board, show up at any of those meetings where very few people do, and get your voice heard. How do we increase engagement at the local level? Well, Scott, I think that people need
1: to, first of all, reflect on which level of government they trust more. Surveys indicate different things when you ask people about their trust in government, depending on which level of government you're talking about. If you talk about the national government, there has been a clear decline in trust over the last 50, 60 years. People are much less trusting of the government at the national level, And studies show that gridlock, the inability of the government to pass laws, has significantly increased over that same time period, again, at the national level. And so I think people need to maybe rediscover the important things that are happening at the state and the local level. Uh, We're in an era of, of declining trust in the national government, of increasing gridlock. Now, what does that open the way for? It opens the way for increased engagement and increased activity at the local level. It it opens the way for people to get more involved at the local level because, frankly, as you noted, Scott, that's where people can see the greater results of their political participation. I, I ask my students this, you know, have you successfully participated in politics, whatever you would view as a success. Have have you successfully participated in politics? Have you successfully made a difference at the national level? And very few of them say yes. Then I asked them, have you successfully participated in politics in your community at the local level? And many of them say yes. And so I think people need to both be concerned about what's going on at the national level, but also view this as an opportunity for more community engagement and to kind of rediscover the importance of state and local politics. You know, Scott, one trend over American history is the increased power of the national government at the expense of state and local governments. That's been an undeniable trend uh, over the course of our history, that uh, the national government has done more and more and more, and that's left less and less and less for the state and local governments. And I wonder if it's time to kind of rethink that balance of power, or or at least that the problems at the national government give Americans the opportunity to rethink that balance of power. I think a question that people need to ask themselves is what do I expect from my state and local government? And maybe people want to shift their expectations more from the national government doing everything to the state and local government doing everything. So while as someone who mainly studies the national government, I'm deeply concerned about many of the trends such as declining trust and and increased gridlock and increased polarization and all of that stuff that's that's well known that's going on at the national level, Uh, I I also think that this could be an opportunity for people to become reengaged at the state and local level and I think that's why institutions like the La Crosse Tribune play such an important role in our community because how do people get involved how are local officials held accountable well it really requires an active and vigorous local press to do that to keep people informed and to keep people aware of what's going on at the local level so I think that um, I, I think that You know, we have a complicated system of government in the United States. We have three distinct levels of government, the national level, the state level, the local level. What do we want each level of government to do? What do we expect from each level of government? As dysfunction increases at the national level, I think that's a pretty
0: important question for people to ask. Well, that's, well, we'll leave listeners with that sort of deep, big-picture thought. Anthony, I appreciate you joining us and, and helping us preview Tuesday's election, and um, we'll look forward to reporting all those results as they come in, in the newspaper and at lacrosstribune.com.